The Paso County DEC is providing this podcast as a public service in order to let you know more about the issues and ideas which Democrats have identified as being very important for voters and also to provide a forum for Democratic candidates for office. Our podcasts are open to anyone interested in how Pasco Democrats are dealing with important issues of the day. You can check out our PascoDems.com website and also on Facebook, Pasco Dems. And the views expressed by the guests and hosts on our podcast are their own. And not the official views of the Pasco County Democratic Party or Democratic Executive Committee. And today we are now on our second or third time, I guess, with Allison uh, Miller, a longtime Pinellas Pasco public defender who is running as a Democrat against Republican incumbent Bruce Bartlett for the top job in Pinellas Pasco, which is the sixth judicial district. And we're talking with her today about where we are in terms of her uh, campaign and what are the current issues and issues that are going to come up. And certainly, the Supreme Court has given us a lot of things. I don't know how they get um, associated, perhaps, with uh, Pasco County, but you feel free to, to link anything you want to do that. So, welcome, Alice. Sure. Nice to talk with you, and tell us how it's going in terms of your campaign. Well, hi. Thanks for having me. Um, the campaign is going great. I am done working, at least till the election, and so I have defended four capital cases in the last 15 months, which is sort of an insane number generally, and especially while running for state attorney, but I am so committed to justice and our constitution and that the constitutional rights enshrined in that document should mean something and that they're sacred, mm-hmm. but I felt it's my ethical moral obligation to fulfill that commitment I've made to those clients. But so I am officially done working. I am campaigning full-time through the election, um, fundraising, doing doing great work. Um, Friday, sort of, you know, I think what everybody did after the Supreme Court actually released the Dobbs opinion, I released a statement on my position on abortion, and then I protested in St. Petersburg. On Saturday and Sunday, I was able to celebrate Pride. Um, St. Pete Pride is huge, celebrating the LGBTQ community, and and it was a really nice change after Friday, especially to be so surrounded by people just wanting to support one another and and share love, Um, and so it was great. We marched in the St. Pete Pride Parade on Saturday, and then also had a booth at the street carnival on Sunday. it's really fun, hotter than the surface of the sun, being outside for five, six right. hours, but it was a great time. Yeah. Uh, just review quickly your position on the abortion issue. Sure. Um, I believe that abortion is protected in the Florida Constitution. The Florida Constitution actually has um, stricter or more stringent privacy rights than the United States Constitution. And for the last three decades, there have been cases, what we call legal precedent, saying that right to privacy that's enshrined in the Florida Constitution also guarantees the right to an abortion. And so, not surprisingly, Judge Cooper struck down the 15-week ban yesterday as unconstitutional, which is pretty much what we 
anticipated happening. And so, because I do not believe the 15-week ban to be constitutional. And so I released a statement saying that as prosecutor, I am not going to prosecute women or healthcare providers for either having or performing abortions. And my position is based on two things. One, the 15-week ban I believe to be illegal or unconstitutional, and Judge Cooper obviously proved me right on that point. And then beyond that, um, morally, I disagree with the 15-week ban- 15-week abortion ban. I'm actually Catholic. I believe in the dignity of all human life from conception through natural death. But I also believe as strongly, if not more strongly, that I get to make that decision for me, myself, and I. Okay. I have, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting. I, I've had occasion to share more about my background, obviously running for office. But I grew up with really con- conservative parents um, who kind of instilled the values of small government. And it was interesting, I was reading the newspaper article that talked about the 15-week abortion ban being stricken as unconstitutional yesterday, and it talked about a constitutional amendment um, to the Florida Constitution in 1980 that the voters passed, and it says the amendment establishing, and this is a quote, every natural person has the right to be let alone and free from governmental intrusion into the person's private life except as otherwise provided herein. And I could not agree with that constitutional amendment more that the voters of Florida passed in 1980 and has remained intact in the Florida Constitution since then and has been what the Florida Supreme Court interpreted as the privacy clause that covered the right to abortion. And so I just don't think that the government should play any role in a decision as deeply personal as one, like whether or not to have an abortion. I believe that decision exists entirely between a woman and her health care provider, and, and that's it. Okay. Now, we know that the, uh, the judge's decision yesterday is going to be uh, challenged, right? So there'll be an injunction yep. that will stop his, his action for a period of time, right? Well, and so when he made a and I'm familiar with Judge Cooper because actually my law firm was part of the lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the governor's executive order banning mask mandates. Ah. And Judge Cooper happened to be the judge that agreed with us on that. And so I am uh, intimately familiar with uh, Judge Cooper, how he rules in the injunctive process. And so Judge Cooper yesterday, when he issued his ruling, did say that he would enjoin the 15-week abortion ban, mm-hmm. meaning he would issue an injunction so abortion providers could continue to provide abortions past 15 weeks. Um, the law before was up to the third trimester, 24 weeks, and then even in the third trimester, there's exceptions, obviously, for the health of the mother. Um, but Judge Cooper, in issuing his ruling yesterday, said that his injunction would probably not happen until the beginning of next week. And so for, because today is July 1st, so at the moment, um, healthcare providers in Florida cannot provide abortions past 15 weeks. Again, we expect an injunction to be issued at the beginning of next week, which then will take it back to 24 weeks with the exceptions that were previously discussed. Yes, and then the governor and his council have already indicated they intend to appeal. Um, And the appellate court has the discretion to strike down the injunction issued by the trial court, which is Judge Cooper, pending the appeal. It has become, I guess in Florida... Uh, I've got people uh, in England with whom I correspond, email and so forth, and one of them happens to be a member of the House of Lords in England. 
and she has quite a background. And uh, she keeps asking me, what, what's happening there in Florida? And I keep saying, well, you've got DeSantis <laughs> who seems to want to control every possible thing that he can control. And I have this feeling that he spends most of his days coming up with any new idea that he can, and that he's, his, uh, his, uh, he's burning so brightly that at some point he's going to burn out. It's, it's, he just can't keep that up. Uh, anyway, that's just a... <laughs> I don't know what you think yeah. about the Santos. You can weigh in if you want. But Well, I, you know, I think that it is very clear he intends to run for president in 2024. And I'm not so secretly, a lot of my friends in the legislature have said that, you know, anything that he does, Governor Santos is governed by his presidential ambitions. Right. Right. Um, I, I was laughing at, like, somebody in Europe being like, Cal, what's going on in Florida? Um, you said that kind of neutrally, but I imagine there's some, you know, shock and hyperbole behind the question. But, um, no, I sometimes think our governor seems to be in a race with the governor of Texas to pass um, more oppressive culture wars type laws. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and it's stuff that I hadn't really contemplated when I was making the decision to run for state attorney. I mean, we've discussed this previously. I'm running for state attorney because of the systemic change that's needed right. to fix a very broken criminal justice system in the Sixth Circuit in Pinellas and Pasco counties. But in the course of this election, or the course of this campaign, excuse me, a lot of things have changed. And so, you know, Governor Abbott in Texas asked his prosecutors to prosecute parents or healthcare providers who provided gender-affirming healthcare for transgender children. Parents! He asked prosecutors to prosecute parents. And the prosecutors in Texas, frankly, pushed back. And then I got to thinking... Would that look the same if something similar were to happen in Florida? Mm, right? Yeah. Only, and so that's, you know, I don't think, I mean, why would anybody have reason to know this, right? It, there are only 20 elected state attorneys in the entire state of Florida. And the state attorney is what we call our district attorney. It is right. the top prosecutor for this judicial circuit, and there are only 20. Yeah. And as you can imagine, the Florida Prosecuting Attorneys Association carries a tremendous amount of legislative weight in this state. Mm-hmm. And of those 20 prosecutors, only six are Democrats. And of those six Democrats, only two are women. The prosecutor for the Ninth Circuit, Lenny Quirrell, um, in Orange and Osceola County, and Catherine Rundle-Fernandez, or Fernandez-Rundle, excuse me, in Miami, the Eleventh Circuit. And so, you know, it, it, my race started out very much because of the desperate need that we have here, and it continues to be about that. Right. But I also now am speaking to people across the state because I am the only state attorney race on the ballot in 2022. The state attorneys elect, as do the as do the public defenders, on the presidential election cycle, except for the 20th Circuit. The, both the PD and the state attorney in the 20th Circuit are running unopposed. Um, and my race is a special election because Mr. McCabe passed in the first 20 months right. of his four-year term. But so I am the only state attorney race on the ballot in 2022. And so, let's, let's, yeah. go ahead, I'm sorry. That's okay. I want to make sure, and we're going to be doing this another one or two times, as I'm sure, but right now let's make sure that the basic things you're talking about in terms of your plans uh, for the office uh, get talked about again. Uh, sure. Violent crime, etc. Go ahead. Sure. Well, so, 
as a longtime public defender, and I'm also somebody who's been victimized by violent crime, I've really studied criminal justice, what works, what doesn't. And my goal is to make our communities safe, be a better steward of the taxpayer's dollar, and hopefully provide people a pathway to redemption who are in the system to get out. Because that benefits not just the folks that have found themselves in trouble, obviously, that benefits all of us, right? right. And so the Sixth Circuit, Pinellas and Pasco counties, prior to this last fiscal cycle, the pandemic has been a real outlier when it comes to crime and crime reporting. Right. But prior to this last fiscal cycle, the Sixth Circuit historically sends more people to prison every year than every other circuit in Florida. Wow. And we're not the biggest by any stretch of the imagination. So Miami-Dade is almost 3 million people. Pinellas-Pasco combined are 1.6 million people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can consider Miami to be much more of a crime hub. It's a bad kind of an air quotes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Miami. And we put more people in prison. We put more people in prison than Orange Osceola. We put more people in prison than the Fourth Circuit, which is Jacksonville, Duval, Nassau, and Clay. And it's not because we have people committing more crime here, right? It's because our our idea of punishment is fixated on on this 1960s, 1970s way of doing criminal justice that over time has been proven to be ineffective in promoting public safety. Right. So that's what I think is so frustrating is that you know, people that promote this tough on crime, again, in finger quotes, lock everybody up, law and order type right. justice, as people say that meaning that it has to equate with public safety. And everybody that's promoting that knows that's not true, right? You can't make the community safer by putting everybody in prison. It's just, it's not feasible, right? And so when you put people in prison, especially for low-level, non-violent crime like drug possession, most of those folks are going to prison related to their own personal circumstances dealing with substance dependency and mental illness and poverty. Obviously, poverty is a huge driver of crime. And so when you put people in prison, we provide zero rehabilitative services in the Department of Corrections, and those folks get out with the same circumstances that got them in there, and now they're convicted felons. And we pretend to be shocked at the rates of recidivism and recidivism that leads to violent crime. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm raising a six-year-old daughter. She'll be seven July 19th. She'd be mad at me if I didn't say that. Um, But, you know, I know probably better than most doing death penalty defense how violent violent crime has become. And I couldn't stand idly by anymore and watch the system continue to perpetuate without trying to effectuate the meaningful change that I think we need. And given the age of your of your daughter, uh, you have a, a section in your um, agenda called Cease Charging Children as Adults Except in Extreme Cases. Why don't you elaborate yeah. on that a bit? Well, and so I have made a commitment, which sounds like an obvious one, but one which is not um, honored now, that I'm not going to violate the civil rights of the defendants that I prosecute. And I say that because we're investigating racial parity at every angle where prosecutorial discretion is afforded. So the prosecutor has great discretion in the state of Florida. The police get to decide who gets arrested. The prosecutor gets to decide who gets charged. Right. right? So who gets charged, what sentence is recommended. If diversion is offered to that person, um, if the child is charged as an adult, 
if the death penalty is sought, all of those things, that discretion is entirely afforded to the state attorney. And here, at every one of those angles, there's huge racial disparity, and juvenile justice is one of the biggest. So, Pinellas County, I'll use by way of example, is only about 18, the, per, the population of Pinellas County is only about 18% black. But mm-hmm. 71% of children who were charged as adults last year in Pinellas were black. Right. Right. And so if you're a child of color who's two to three times more likely to be charged as an adult, there's a problem. And I remind you, my opponent, when he got appointed after Mr. McCabe passed, said that the thing that makes his office the most effective is the lack of change, which is really the impetus for me running um, that statement. Um, But so, yeah, we have a major problem in juvenile justice. But beyond that... I believe I have a moral, we all as a community share this, a moral and ethical obligation to rehabilitate children. The purpose of the juvenile justice system, the stated purpose is rehabilitation. The stated, you know, in statute purpose of the adult criminal justice system is punitive. It's to punish. Florida actually eliminated rehabilitation from the stated purpose of the adult criminal justice sentencing code. And so our goal is to rehabilitate children into becoming fully functioning, law-abiding adults, hopefully, right? And again, I just wanted to tell you one thing. Some of these statistics that exist, you think to yourself, why did this need to exist? If you put a child in prison, eventually the child is going to be released. That child is far more likely to re-offend by committing an act of violence than if you had not put the child in prison. Mm -hmm. Prison is a deeply traumatic place. And so... Again, it doesn't serve the community as a whole to charge a child as an adult where that child will face adult sanctions like prison because mm-hmm. all we do is take children who are prey and make them into predators, right. which is seen anecdotally in every data evidence study that we have. What I was going to interject there, uh, Allison, was this. I've done a fair amount of study on the Navajo Nation. I used to teach a couple books in my class on Navajo detectives and so forth. And um, I went and spent, my wife and I spent a week in the Navajo Nation just traveling around and, and looking at things and so forth. And one of the things I found out was that in terms of the Navajo, they believe that putting someone in prison isn't going to work. What you have to do is to get that person back in harmony with nature, which in effect is what we're really saying rehabilitation is all about, to get you back so you're in harmony with the people around you and that you can then work and have a productive living and and so forth. And I look at sometimes what's happening in the, the Scandinavian countries in terms of their prisons. And God, you look at what the way they are. They got TVs. They got their own cell. Um, you know, everything is almost like a home. And what's happening? People get out being rehabilitated. We don't seem to want to do that here. Yeah, we do things that seems to lack forward thinking, right? So I believe in accountability. Again, I grew up with really conservative parents, but I think accountability can be a part of rehabilitation. I think accountability should be a part of rehabilitation, but it benefits not just the person who's found himself or herself in trouble to rehabilitate that person, right? It benefits all of us if the goal is public safety to have somebody who's not going to become a recidivistic statistic, Right? right? And like, the thing that I, I use by way of example when I say, man, do we seem to do things that lack forward thinking is most of the state prisons in Florida are not air conditioned. Right. And so we, we all know what it's like in Florida in the summer. The thermal index in prison 
inside those cells reaches like 180, 190 degrees. Mm -hmm. And again, we all know what happens when you have exposure to prolonged heat, extreme heat, right? We have people suffering dehydration and heat stroke and death in some circumstances. And you know who pays when the prisoners get sick in the Florida Department of Corrections? Sure. We do. The taxpayers, right? And beyond that, again, I don't think anybody's going to be surprised by this. Exposure to prolonged heat causes aggression. Right? And so, like, Florida's death row is not air-conditioned. You have men who have been sentenced to die in single cells in confinement isolation, and we heat them up to these ungodly temperatures, which, of course, increases aggression. You know, <laughs> prison is dramatically understaffed. I'm deeply concerned for our correctional officers that are in there, and it's like, why should anybody live or work in these circumstances? Mm -hmm. We are, we have created a pressure cooker. It is a powder keg. And it's it's only our legislature's fault at this point. And it's like it's like there's sometimes these people who are creating these situations are only saying, look, somebody did a bad thing, and by gosh, that person's going to pay. When ultimately right. the irony is, it may not be so much that person paying; it may be that society as a whole is going to be paying a price because we're not doing what we should do. That's exactly right, and that's like as part of our kind of a fundamental tenet of doing death penalty defense. There is. No one else that is responsible for committing the crime, but for the defendant, right? We offer mitigation or reasons for life, not as, not as an excuse, justification, or defense to the crime, because those things don't exist. But there are reasons why these things happen, and there are contributing or shared culpability type circumstances. So you're right, if something happens in the Department of Corrections, it is only the person's fault who did that thing. But we have created these circumstances now, and so I don't think we get to put our head in the sand and say, we as a state share no blame when things happen in there, when we know these circumstances exist, we know they're less than ideal, and we know they contribute to these things. Now, one of the things I want to do is to give you a couple of minutes to sort of uh, just sit back for a moment and reflect on what your campaign has been about, what you have learned the most in your campaign, and then we'll make plans. Let's see, this is uh, July 1st. Yeah. yeah. And we'll talk again probably in August, September, whatever is going to be uh, convenient for you. But for right now, just sort of, what have you learned in terms of this race? You're an experienced person. You've been through the court system and so forth. Allison, what have you learned? Well, I've learned a bunch. Um, I think that people, for the most part, are tired of the divisive rhetoric, Republican versus Democrat, and I think that we're all more similar. We're more alike than, we're, than we are not alike. Um, and that I think everybody really wants from the criminal justice system a system that will protect and respect everyone. And that's it, right? I don't think anybody's asking for any more or less than anybody else is, but we have a criminal justice system right now that doesn't respect and protect everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I have been a PD a long time, and so I have been in the trenches, I have been walking the walk, but I have spent a lot of time with our historically marginalized communities. And I have, I, my eyes have been opened in a way that I already thought they were open um, about the foundations of race, in, in most all of the disparities in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, and, and stuff that I probably should have been better educated or thought that I knew, I've just really been been blown away that if we can't, you know, and we have in Florida the Stop Woke Act, if we can't, and no one's teaching critical race theory in elementary education, but if we can't have conversations about kind of the foundations of our country that the first, you know, 10 of 12 presidents enslaved people and acknowledge that it plays a role in why we are where we are, oh, right. it makes makes it really hard to, to think of how we're going to fix this. My, my, uh, wife, my wife and I both were, were both teachers, and my wife taught history, and she was just saying yesterday that, my Lord, how on earth would you ever teach civics today and still be truthful to what history tells us what occurred? And I taught, one of the courses I taught was an introduction to philosophy, and I had 16 and 17 year old kids, you know, and we sometimes talked about, well, is there a God? We, we sometimes talked about socialism and communism. If I were to do that today in Florida, I'd be in jail. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, it's uh, not untrue. And you know, I occasionally guest lecture in the criminology department at USF mm -hmm. about the death penalty. Um, and prior to all of this legislation, I have never once gotten a question about critical race theory. And now, almost every time I speak, somebody asks me about it and how it applies to the death penalty. And certainly, there's a racial component to the death penalty and like um, generational disadvantage theory, which I'm happy to share. But I just find it really interesting that as soon as we, I laugh because as soon as we outlaw something, I get more questions about it than I ever got before, which is to say, I got no questions about it before. Okay. Uh, to wrap this up, uh, with just maybe one more comment on things. A one-word comment on things? Yeah, not yeah. One more comment, not one word. But oh, one, one more, word. one more. I think <laughs> one word. I'm like, uh oh, Cal. <laughs> one word. Right. Um, I'm really energized. I think the campaign is in a great place. I'm psyched that I can devote myself full time to campaigning and fundraising. I hate how deeply interconnected money is to campaigning, but I need money to reach voters. Um, I encourage everyone to check my website out at www.millerforstateattorney.com. You know, donate if you're able, get involved. We have yard signs. We just got those in. I will meet you. You can come to the campaign office and pick them up. But I'm really inspired, and I think we're on the right track to win this thing in November. Well, I know I will need to get a yard sign, so uh, I'll go to your yes, website sir. and figure out how to do it. Okay, Amy, uh, excuse me, Allison, I want to thank you very much for uh, uh, being with us today. Uh, it's always a joy to talk with you because there's so much that one can talk about. And, uh, you know, we could probably go on for two or three hours until finally we say, well, <laughs> but for right now, I'll say goodbye to you and thanks, and I'll be in touch for another one very soon. Thanks very All much. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Cal. Yeah. Bye-bye.